Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Lisette Baron Carvajal, a host of the channel. Here at the New Books Network, we know that the world is facing a tremendous challenge and that many of you are dealing to the best of your abilities with the consequences of this pandemic. We hope that in the midst of all, these interviews can help you face the dread and isolation, or at the very least, that they can distract you and help you think in something else. This is why today I will be talking to Victor Uribe Uran about his wonderful book, Fatal Love, Spousal Killers, Law, and Punishment in the Late Colonial Spanish Atlantic, published by Stanford University Press in 2016. Welcome, Victor. Thank you for talking to me, especially in this difficult moment. Thank you for having me. Okay, so you're a professor of history and law at Florida International University. You have a JD from Universidad Externado, which is located in Bogota, Colombia. And you did your PhD in history at the University of Pittsburgh. Tell us about this trajectory of yours and how and why you became a historian of law. Uh, I was born, raised in Colombia and also did my undergraduate degree there. As you mentioned, I am a lawyer from Universidad Externado de Colombia. I practice law for about four years upon graduation. And the legal practice I had was poverty law. I worked with low-income communities in the city of Bogota with peasants, Indians in the countryside of Colombia, trying to support them in their struggle to recover land that they had lost and so on and so forth. I became at the time very interested in understanding much better than I could with my legal studies the possibilities of using law as a means of social transformation. So I became curious, intellectually curious, about law and social change, law and politics, and decided to take advantage of the opportunity to get a fellowship to study abroad, the Fulbright Fellowship. Came to the U.S., studied political science because my interest was, as I said, trying to understand the political implications of the use of law in contexts like the context of Colombia, where, where there was lots of turbulence, violence, and so on and so forth. And then little by little, I transitioned to historical questions, because part of what I saw happening in Colombia with violence had a lot to do with the origin of political parties, political wars in the 19th century. So I became less and less obsessed with theoretical uh, issues and more and more obsessed with historical questions, down-to-earth questions about why political parties, how did they originate it, why they confronted one another so much. And then my questions, as they became more historical, took me to other type of things such as the history of lawyers, not so much law and social change in abstract, but the way in which a particular community of lawyers could impact uh, society, politics. And that is what I ended up doing, uh, doing research on the history of the legal profession, 
And then later on, I uh, drifted towards uh, doing research on the history of crime. So in a nutshell, it's like an intellectual quest, uh, starting with uh, abstract issues of law and politics and evolving into more down-to-earth issues of the particular activities of, again, members of the legal community in place and time with specific dates and, and with specific locations. So yeah, so this is not your first book. You just told us this and you publish extensively both in Spanish and English. But why um, did you came to focus specifically on spousal murders, which is the topic of this book? And tell us also why you moved from focusing exclusively on Colombia to creating a more comparative Atlantic project. Uh When I was doing research for my first book, which was a history of lawyers, uh, society, and politics in Colombia, I came across a number of documents that concerned criminal issues in late colonial and early 19th century Colombia. Those criminal issues involved all kinds of crimes, thefts, murders, rapes, and so on and so forth. And the one that drew my attention the most were a series of incidents involving crimes committed by spouses who killed their partner. And I became kind of fixated on those because I thought they were intriguing, they were kind of sexy, if you want. They came as uh, something that could possibly give us information on legal issues, but also on family and gender. I started to become more and more interested in gender relations. So I ended up piling up little by little information on those spousal murders. And uh, one day I found myself designing an entire book project on those and ended up spending many years of my life perusing through archives in several places. Uh, I decided that Colombia uh, needed to be put into a larger, broader context because Colombia, the the reality is that Colombia has not been one of the most dominant places to study, one of the most attractive places to study for Latin American historians, for those who specialize in Latin American history. Normally, the places that people tend to concentrate the most are by the biggest by the royalties of the colonial period. Those are Mexico and Peru. Or in other instances, in the case of, of Portugal, the main colonial outpost, which was Brazil. So Brazil. Peru, Mexico, and then later on Argentina also became dominant places for people to study. I decided that Colombia, which was again more marginal, needed to be paired with one of those other places in order to receive more attention, in order to draw a wider readership. And that is why I decided to choose Mexico as a counterpoint. There were a number of reasons, more technical, and I probably don't want to enter into all those details that made the comparison between Colombia and Mexico very attractive. And then little by little, I also became more and more interested in the wider Atlantic ramifications of the study I was doing. And that is when I decided to plug in also Spain as a case. Atlantic history became actually an area of interest for historians of Latin America back in the late 80s, early 1990s. I was uh, really transformed in the way of conceiving of history by my joining FIU, which is a department whose concentration is Atlantic history. So I decided not only to make Colombia 
more attractive by pairing it with Mexico, but to also put Colombia and Mexico together with Spain to have a wider readership of people who were interested in Atlantic history. Yeah, and here I've interviewed one of your colleagues, Bianca Premo, and she has a similar approach. And it's very interesting. Both books are fantastic. So you visited many different archives, complemented your research with useful secondary bibliography from those countries, and discovered new cases that have never been systematically studied by other scholars. So this is a truly impressive project. Can you tell us maybe a little bit about the cases you found? Maybe give us a sense of the number um, and so maybe a little bit also about the archives. Okay. I, I first, as was logical, given my, my background and training, started with Colombia. So I went to archives in Colombia, particularly in three cities, Bogotá, Medellín, and Popayán, that actually have the most important repositories of documents on uh, colonial history and also have also important collections of documents for what Latin American historians refer to as modern history, the history of Latin America after processes of independence took place in the 1820s. So in Popayán, in Medellín and in Bogotá, I gather a sample of cases, actually turned out to be the universe of cases available, all of the spousal murders available in those places. And we are talking here about, about 54 cases. Then, little by little, after having published actually a major article on, on the Colombian case, I started to do research in Mexico. I spent uh, several summers in Mexico and went to a variety of places. I went to Oaxaca. I went to Zacatecas. I went to uh, Puebla. I went to Veracruz. I spent extensive uh, time in, in the archives in Mexico City. Altogether, in all of these archives, I gather another large sample of cases here we're talking about 87 or so cases. I only miss archives perhaps in Yucatan that could have had supplementary information, but for the most part, I really use all of the available archives on judicial history for Mexico. And then I uh, earned an NEH, a National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowship, that allowed me to go to Spain. At the time, my interest was to concentrate in only one archive, the archive in the city of Seville, the Archivo General de Indias, the General Archive for the Indies, as it was called, that was the main repository of documents on Spain's colonial ventures, particularly in the Indies, in the West Indies, which is how Latin America, Spanish America was known at the time. But then I, I realized that in Seville there were not enough documents. I, I actually was mistaken in thinking that I was going to find uh, additional criminal cases there. There were but a couple of cases. And I decided to branch out and ended up traveling throughout Spain and visiting virtually all of the archives of all of the Socola Audiencias, that is the highest courts of appeals in Spain, so I ended up going to Coruña, to Cáceres, to Valladolid, to Simancas, to Valencia, to Granada, to Córdoba, to Madrid itself. And in all of these places, I ended up also gathering all possible uh, cases of spousal murder 
available, and I think I unearthed about 65 cases in total. Here I found 10, there I found five, in other places I found a dozen and so on and so forth, and I ended up piling again about 65 or so. Altogether, I ended up coming up with a database of over 200 cases, and uh, those 200 cases became the raw material for, for my book. Obviously, besides the judicial archives, I simultaneously spent lots of time in libraries, in the National Library of Spain, in the National Library of Mexico, in the National Library of Bogota, uh, in Colombia, which, which is located in Bogota. And in all of these libraries, I supplemented the information that I had from, again, criminal records. I supplemented it with a number of other intriguing documents, in particular, a vast number of legal manuals. There were, to my surprise, a number of practical manuals lawyers used in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries to handle the cases that they had to litigate And those manuals actually provided very valuable information on how criminal cases were processed, how lawyers addressed a number of intriguing circumstances, particularly circumstances that were supposed to reduce the seriousness of one crime or or actually aggravate the seriousness of one crime. So all of those documents also became central part of, of my archival information for this book. Yeah, and I mean, the vastness of, of the project really comes through the book and also the footnotes. And me, for example, as a researcher, I found them super useful. So if listeners you know, are interested in legal history or criminal cases, this book provides so many useful references and information. And so I cannot recommend it enough. So maybe now we can talk a little bit about time frame. So you focus on the late colonial period. And this has been a period that has received significant attention from the scholarship. So you mentioned that this period was a period of private corporate patriarchy and also a period of enlightened punishment. Um, So can you tell our listeners what these concepts are and why you think they're useful and important to understand this particular time? Yes, as, as a scholar, I specialized in the period that is referred to as the age of revolutions that extend from roughly the 1750s until the 1850s. This is a particularly exciting period because, as its name suggests, it was a moment where lots of changes were taking place in all parts of the world. There was the French Revolution, the American Revolution, the revolutions for independence in Latin America, and so on and so forth. So that was to start my biggest or bigger frame of, of reference. Then I started to originally concentrate only in late colonial times because I thought probably this was going to be a little unmanageable if I cover 100 years of history. But uh, I more and more realized that it was important for a full story to I- indeed include parts of the period after the revolutions for independence. So I, in a way, went back to my original frame of reference, the age of revolution. And two concepts that you mentioned, Lisette, and that are central to this period are a corporate patriarchy. Corporate patriarchy is a notion that was originally coined by a very fine historian of Mexico, Professor Silvia Arrom. Silvia Arrom studied the history of women in Mexico around these years, and she came up with the realization that uh, similar to the corporate structure of 
Spanish-American societies, meaning a structure where there were a number of corporations being the ones that gave shape to that society, corporations such as the nobility, the army, the clergy, but also other types of kind of semi-corporations or semi-corporate bodies such as Indian communities or such as the community of fathers and mothers and so on and so forth. The mentality of these societies was attuned to the classification of society into groups based upon their occupation, their function in society, their occupation as, again, military men, clergymen, and so on and so forth, or their function in society as parents or mothers or, again, manual workers. And what Sylvia Rom suggested is that the hierarchy inside households, the hierarchy inside families, in a way of a the same type of logic. Parents, particularly male figures, are at the top of the hierarchy because they performed in the mentality of the time the most important function. They are directors, as if it were, of the family. And then second in line might be wives, except they might be actually last in line, depending upon what, what, what is looking at. But the point ultimately is that Sylvia Arom applied the same metaphor that was used for the entire Spanish colonial society to households and decided that the best way to characterize what male figures did in a household was that they were corporate patriarchs, the patriarchs that dominated that particular corporation, that corporation being the family that performed a particular, very important particular social function in Spanish Society. So kind of in a nutshell, she used that a concept to refer to families. And as for enlightened punishment, as probably your, your listeners know, the Enlightenment was an era that uh, took place in the second half of the 18th century, roughly, in Europe particularly. And during that era, there was an increasing concern over rationality, over freedom, over modernizing categories that made societies more progressive. The liberals were individuals who were already producing a number of ideas, particularly in the field of political economy, and were starting to suggest that ancien regime European societies move, move, must move forward by opening up the economy by abandoning all ways, particularly mercantilist ways, where there was lots of economic protectionism, by opening borders, by engaging in free trade, and so on and so forth. And in the realm of criminal law, of punishment, the innovation was that European societies, ancien regime societies, must abandon the concentration on bodily punishment, on bodily pain, and give way to other forms of punishment that was more were more civilized or humane. And civilized and humane punishment called for, again, the abandonment of gruesome pain, torture, and procedures that were considered to be more and more unacceptable, such as hanging people. And they should give way to lighter, gentler, more humane modalities of punishment. So again, that was also something that became increasingly important in my project, paying attention to how punishment, even for 
murderers that were considered despicable, such as those who killed their spouses, how punishment, even for that group of criminals, was uh, thought to be modified, and how is it that it became enlightened? Yeah, and we'll get to punishment later. But for now, let's move up to the chapters, because I think in the chapters we can see your arguments and interventions beautifully and clearly outlined. Um, so you choose a sort of different way of structuring your book, and you created two overlapping components. The first is for those interested in legal history, and those chapters look at the various judicial and legal aspects, so laws, procedures, etc., that came into play in the resolution of spousal murders. So this component is comprised by chapters 1, 3, 5, and 7. And the second component is for those more interested in social history, uh, so the daily life of ordinary people, and historical sociology. And you present the three case studies that you've mentioned. Um, so in those chapters, social and sociological aspects take precedence over legal issues. So this component is made up by chapters two, four, and six. And your final chapter, chapter eight, analyzes the transition to the modern world. So I would like to honor that organization um, in my following questions because I think it works very well in the book. Um, so the questions I will make will go back and forth between this more legal aspect and those more social uh, history cases. So chapter one looks at the ecclesiastical and civil laws uh, pertaining to marriage and marriage-related conflicts and crimes in Spain and the colonies and the judicial procedures concerning trials for murders and other public crimes. So we, without going into much detail, I mean, if listeners are interested, they can go to this particular chapter, but maybe you can tell us what were some of the most important laws, uh, procedures that you think that listeners have to have in mind in order to understand how marriage worked in the Spanish Atlantic world, how domestic conflicts could be solved. And maybe here you can explain the public nature of spousal murders. So in opposition to the private nature of other crimes. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about this. Thank you, Lisette. I, I am impressed by the close reading that you made of the book. I appreciate that. Um, in chapter one, which I titled Access to Justice, what I ended up doing was trying to summarize in as clear a way as possible the legal, technical aspects behind the stories that I recount in the rest of the book. So I wanted to start by giving the reader a, a sort of inventory of the laws that were more significant uh, at the time, particularly significant in terms of regulating marriage, because obviously these were all marital conflicts. All of these murders originated as conflicts within marriage. And I wanted to again tell them this is how marriage was supposed to be regulated in Spanish-American societies. And the regulation of marriage, for the most part, was a matter of what was referred to as canon law, the law of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church was dominant in Spanish-American societies, in Iberian society in general, and the Catholic Church really had a control over the law, the mechanisms applied to not only contracting marriage, but also solving conflicts within marriage at the time. Even the most uh, intense of disputes, again, fell, fell under the purview 
of the Catholic Church. So canon law was central to this. And in canon law, one important component was all of the regulations coming out of the so-called Council of Trent, a gathering of the, the, higher, the Catholic hierarchy that took place in the mid-16th century as a response to Protestantism, as a, result, as a response to the Reformation. So it was kind of the most emblematic gathering of, of clergy to launch the counter-Reformation. And one of the aspects that they dealt with in detail was marriage how marriage was to happen, what were the impediments to marriage, etc., etc. Then I also list a number of other bodies of legislation that were royal legislation, legislation produced not by the church but by the crown itself. And those bodies of legislation included in particular a series of uh, medieval laws called the Siete Partidas, a body of medieval legislation that addressed uh, in particular, crime and punishment, and a number of other bodies of law enacted in the 16th, 17th century. I won't tire you with the name of those, but all of these laws gave us information about, again, the dynamics of marriage and the dynamics of marital conflicts. And what uh, came uh, across uh, as after examining and reading all of this is that even though marital conflicts were private, affairs because both the church and the crown understood that families were to be left alone and were to be left to regulate their own relations as best as possible without any interference. At the same time, they realized that there were serious violations of the marital bond, of the marital contract, and one of them was cases where uh, one of the spouses injured seriously the other one to the point of even killing him or her. And in those cases, both the crown and the church decided those were things that could not be left possibly alone for families to decide on. But on the contrary, they required public intervention because they were matters of public interest. And that is how the notion of public crimes came to be central to the regulation of all of these marital disputes. Injuries were still private matters, and spouses were left to decide on those on their own. Sometimes they might ask a priest for advice, but murder was a different matter, was a different story altogether. And in cases of murder, it didn't matter whether families wanted or not the intervention, requested or not the intervention of the crown or the church, they had to accept the intervention of both the crown, and the crown and the church because the violation was so egregious, was so serious, that there wasn't possibly a way this could remain a private matter. And again, that is where the notion of public crime as opposed to private crime came to be uh, central to the affairs involving murder. Yeah, awesome. I think that's so important to understand. So maybe now we can move to chapter two, which I actually really liked, which is titled Innocent Infants, Indians and Domestic Violence in Colonial Mexico. So this is the first case study. And here you open up with the case of Lorenzo Macapa, the son of an Indian leader, an hacienda owner who in 1775 knocked his pregnant wife to the ground 
and proceeded to kick her several times in the lower back and stomach. So the woman died at the next day as a consequence of the injuries she suffered. And this occurred near a Spanish military outpost in the remote region of Baja California when the couple was returning from a Catholic mission located in the area. So the mission's Franciscan priest and the vice-royalty prosecutor asked for leniency for Lorenzo on the grounds of his rusticidad or primitive conditions, as well as his previous cooperation and that of his father in the conversion of older Indians. So this case, as many others included in this chapter, represent the complex interaction of patriarchy and paternalism during the colonial period, and they show how the Spanish crown accorded to natives differential punishment based on the notion of, quote-unquote, miserable people. So tell us a little bit about this notion and how Rogel paternalism served to reinforce patriarchal rule in the home. And you kind of mentioned that when you talk about Silvia Rome a little bit, but it's very interesting in the case of Mexico, the outcome of this was that, you know, indigenous men were prosecuted less harshly uh, and that women, indigenous women, lost um, social power and their crimes were not as harshly penalized as in other cases. The case of Mexico became important for me to address the treatment of Indians. As you mentioned, uh, the majority of murderers in this chapter, in the chapter on Mexico, were members of indigenous communities. They were a majority of the population at the time, and probably it was logical that they also were the majority of people involved in all kinds of crime, including spouse and murder. What was intriguing and surprising to me is that when I started to look at the punishment of these Indians, I was struck by the light nature of that punishment. I had imagined that because Indians were considered to be brutish, uncivilized, less than human, they were going to be, if anything, treated as animals and punished as animals in the probably harshest possible way. And that was not the case. They were treated very, very leniently. Many of them were actually forgiven altogether. They benefited from pardon, from amnesty. They benefited from kind of an indifferent attitude to some of the crimes that they had committed, even the most brutal of crimes. And I started to try to understand better what was going on and realized that some of this had a lot to do with an apparent legal technicality, a notion that became central to the way judges resolved many of the cases, that technicality had to do with a, a legal notion uh, called miserabilis persona. Miserabilis persona in, in, in Latin address miserable peoples. And miserable peoples, I thought also, had to do with the fact that Indians were poor. But it turned out that miserabilis persona had been a category that the church, canon law, the law of the Catholic Church, had developed as a mechanism for the church to step in and actually take over the resolution of certain cases 
involving not only people who were miserable because of economic circumstances. Actually, that was not the main consideration. The main consideration was that some people were miserable because they were vulnerable. And vulnerability can relate to a number of things such as infirmity, that is, disability, or it can refer to gender. Women were more vulnerable than men. Or it might have to do with age. Children may be more vulnerable than adults. Or actually, the elderly might be more vulnerable than the youth, and so on and so forth. So this generic category of miserable peoples encompassed a variety of people, including, again, the crippled, which was the the expression used at the time, the elderly. Pilgrims going on pilgrimage to faraway places where they had no a social network that could support them or they can rely on, and therefore they were vulnerable. It could include, actually, eventually, in the Indies, Indians. And the Indians were lumped together with all of these other groups of vulnerable peoples and considered to be deserving of not only being judged, if possible, by the Catholic Church as opposed to the Crown, but they also deserved to be treated with leniency, and that actually ended up being central to the explanation of why they were treated so kindly, so gently. And what I then ended up saying was that even though Indians were treated as if they were infants, because that is what happened in colonial Latin America, they were treated as infants, and they were provided a special protector, a curador, a curator. The curator for Indians was meant to represent minors because Indians were minors. But at the same time that they were treated as minors, obviously their behaviors, their violence against their wives suggest that they were patriarchs, abusive patriarchs. So I ended up playing with the two categories. On the one hand, the category of Indians are as patriarchs, and on the other hand, the category of Indians as minors, deserving protection, deserving lenient treatment, and so on. Yeah, and that chapter is fascinating. I really, really liked it. So in that chapter, you mention mechanisms. You know, you give example in which royal law and kind of law could show clemency, leniency, and they can eventually forgive criminals. So in a way, this is the subject of chapters three and five. So chapter three is titled The King's Forgiveness, Earthly Intercessions and Legal Culture, while chapter five is titled God's Forgiveness, Heavenly Intercession. So tell us about the crown and the church and how they use clemency and love in these cases. And why, you know, why did they decide to forgive certain criminals? Why was this so important to steal obedience and loyalty in their subjects? Well, both uh, the crown and the church, again, were the most dominant institutions in uh, colonial Spanish-American societies, and actually in many European societies at the time as well. And they both were, in a way, competing for followers. Their followers were kind of the same, but they each somehow wanted to be loved more than the other because they were in constant competition with one another for dominance. So the Pope wanted to be above the kings. And uh, the same happened with 
bishops and cardinals and so on and so forth. They wanted to be above viceroys and government officials in every region. This competition actually translated into competition over who was more magnanimous, who was more charitable, who was more lenient, who was more forgiven. And that meant that, in a way, the crown and the church competed to be as forgiven as was possible. The way in which the king was forgiven had multiple expressions. And the main expressions were the so-called indultos or pardons. The indultos were uh, mechanisms whereby the crown celebrated all kinds of royal occasions, weddings, coronations, births, and so on. And those indultos or pardons were extended regularly to criminals of all kinds, even spousal murderers. So many people who have committed murder eventually benefited from the fact that a prince was born or a princess was born or a royal got married or something happened, a coronation, a new king came to power. And all of those occasions were, again, regular times for amnesty laws, for forgiveness, for pardon, for indulto to take place. And that was a manifestation of kind of the most forgiving phase of the monarchy. In the case of the Catholic Church, the main expression of forgiveness actually was a very interesting institution, which was refuge in Catholic churches. Criminals who ran away and enter a church or a cemetery could receive lenient treatment. If not total forgiveness, at least they were spared the most uh, gruesome modalities of punishment, say mutilation or hanging, they could not be killed, they could not be sentenced to the death penalty, they, their bodies could not be mutilated just on account of the fact that they had reached a place of asylum, a place of sanctuary, a Catholic church most particularly. And, and another mechanism that was a combination of both ecclesiastical and monarchical magnanimity or forgiveness were a series of pardons issued during the Catholic Holy Week, Semana Santa, particularly during uh, Holy Friday or what is called Good Friday in in English. Uh, Good Friday was a time during which the king, acting as if it was a representative of God, issued pardons for a number of criminals throughout the, throughout the kingdom. Those were the Holy Friday pardons, the Good Friday pardons. And again, altogether, the indultos, the sanctuary in churches, and these Good Friday pardons, Holy Friday pardons, were uh, an expression of the charity or charitable face or forgiving face of both the monarchy and the crown and many spousal murderers benefited in the process. Yes. And uh, I mean, these chapters are fascinating. So um, I encourage our listeners to go and check them out. I think now we can move to another, to uh, the second um, case that you discuss in the book, that is uh, chapter four, in which you talk about Spain. So here you arrive to one of your most counterintuitive conclusions. 
Here you argue against conventional wisdom that husbands who kill their wives and male lovers to avenge their personal honor and familial honor were not the norm. In fact, wives were often the ones committing the crimes assisted by their lovers. So here you ask us to question some of the most common arguments advanced by the historiography on gender and honor, which posed that it was common and likely that men murder wives or other female relatives who disgrace them uh, or disgrace their family's reputation. Tell us what you found uh, in the case of Spain and how most espousal murderers contradicted any notion or all notions of honorable behavior. Well, I, I was kind of surprised to find that even though husbands were indeed a majority of, of the criminals in all of the samples, wives were by no means an insignificant number. And further, I was even more surprised to realize that when one did a kind of simple statistical calculation, one would realize that wives were four or five times more likely to kill their husbands than to kill anybody else. That is, that their dominant victims were husbands. And not only that, that they kill husbands not exactly because, as one would have imagined, they were being victims of abuse and then they responded in self-defense, but rather than they killed husbands to run away with lovers. And this was all kind of the world upside down to me. I it didn't just square with what I had learned. I had learned that because of codes of honor, a majority of spousal murders were supposed to have been committed by males who were betrayed by their wives. And this was, again, contrary to all of that. And then I tried to figure out what was going on. And I just realized that wives, like could have been expected were many times unhappy in marriage for reasons that is not always easy to explain, are, are not always easy to, to, to figure out, but they were probably sexually unsatisfied, economically unsatisfied, unsatisfied for reasons having to do perhaps with age differentials or race differentials and so on. And Whatever the case was, the point is that they, at some point in their marriage, ended up entering into extramarital affairs. Many women actually sought lovers, found lovers, ended up having lovers, extramarital affairs, and in the process of consolidating those relations, ended up actually being in cahoots with their lovers and murdering husbands to run away. And uh, that was, again, a very counterintuitive finding and uh, I wrote about it, trying to, again, make sense of it. Yeah, and I mean, this chapter, it's its so interesting because it this goes against some of the most commonly held beliefs about how honor works um, in the Iberian world, right? So maybe now we can move to chapter seven. So y you have talked about forgiveness and benevolence, but chapter seven is kind of the other part of the story, right? Is this it's the part about punishment. So this chapter is titled The Many Shades of Pain and Punishment in the Spanish Atlantic. And you discuss here some of the harsher punishments that you found in the cases analyzed. You particularly discuss a type of punishment called encubamiento. So can you tell us a little bit about the history of this type of 
punishment and how even if you found some instances in which such harsh uh, punishment were actually materialized, it was rather uncommon. And it was thus the perfect complement to, to the monarch's forgiveness. I was not expected to pay as much attention as I ended up paying to punishment. Uh, punishment didn't really appear in my radar until much later in the project. As, as the project unfolded, I realized that it was a fascinating aspect that I needed to deal with. And the fascination started with actually the central modality of punishment that was supposed to have been applied to spousal murderers. As you mentioned, Lisette, this was called encubamiento uh, from the word Cuba. Cuba was a leather sack and encubar was to put in a leather sack. But what was more intriguing than the leather sack itself was the fact that originally the sack was supposed to be filled not only with the body of a live criminal, but also with a, a series of beasts or animals that had a symbolic meaning, particularly a rooster, a monkey, a snake, and a dog. And these animals were meant to be together with the criminal, live criminal, and then the sack was supposed to be sealed so that in a way what was going to happen is that these animals were going to murder and eat and torture the criminal that was later on going to be placed in a lake, a river, or the ocean. So altogether this, mean, this punishment was meant to symbolize the seriousness, the gravity of these criminal behaviors and the fact that these criminals were so despicable that they were not even deserving of being buried in a cemetery as other Christians were. They were really treated as, as non-Christians deserving of being forgotten forever, abandoned forever. And then as I started to examine the practical application of this punishment, I realized that over time, and we are talking over centuries, because this punishment was a Roman punishment that came back from centuries before Christ. Uh, Roman emperors had introduced this crime uh, back in ancient times. And again, this was an inheritance that went through medieval societies and was again passed on to early modern Spanish society. But over centuries, there was a silent transformation of this punishment whereby Criminals were not anymore introduced alive in the sack, or the animals were not anymore introduced, but just painted in the sack, or the sack was not anymore abandoned in a river or an ocean, but just wetted a bit and and withdrawn from a body of water to be buried, because actually they were not dumped and forgotten in an ocean or or in a river. And what I started to try to understand is why this happened. Why over time there was such a distortion of the original punishment and such a transformation. And this had to do, in fact, with humanism, with humanitarianism, with making punishment less harsh, less brutal, less unchristian. It's as if the mourners had realized, not only with this, but with other modalities of crime, that Christians could not be subjected to such a treatment because God would have never approved of such 
despicable manner of treating human beings. And I ended up then uh, trying to learn more and more about the transformation of punishment, physical punishment, brutal punishment over centuries. And this extended not only to encubamiento, but also to hanging, because actually other spousal murderers who were not encubados or placed in these leather sacks were simply hung. And when they were hanged, I wanted to know if at some point in time, the monarchy and the church, as was the case, started to have second thoughts about hanging being a punishment that was Christian enough, that was civilized enough. And indeed, I learned that hanging also fell under the eye of advocates of humanizing punishment and ended up being ultimately suppressed and transformed into a no less gruesome modality, but fastest modality of executing criminals that I explain in my book and that is called Garrori. And the Garrori actually became the alternative to hanging. And I explain in detail what the Garrori was and how it came to be used not only in late colonial and early 19th century times, but also even until the 1970s in Spain. Only in the Franco era was the Garrotti was going to, to be suppressed. Yeah, and this leads us to your last case, which is actually the way how you started this whole project, right? Which is the case of New Granada, what today we know as Colombia. So you begin the chapter with the case of a young mixed-race woman uh, named Dominga Josefa Espitia, who in December of 1802 was enjoying herself in a party in the company uh, of her husband, Matias. Ostian. Um, so Nicolas Rusa, Dominguez's lover, also attended the celebration. So at some point in the evening, Matias dragged his wife out of the party, apparently because Dominga flirted with Nicolas. The details are somewhat fuzzy, but Matias ended up dead. So the husband ended up dead. Apparently, he started hitting Dominga with a machete, and Nicolas, who had followed them, attacked Matias, also with a machete, and killed him. Um, in Nicolas' version, it was Dominga who gave her husband the final blow, but we, we cannot know exactly what happened. So Nicolas faced 10 years of hard labor in Cartagena as a punishment while Domingo was sentenced to work uh, without a salary for six years. Uh, this case, as many discussed in the chapter, show women participated in public activities and celebrations, engaging in extramarital relations and clashing with their spouses over this behavior. So this confirms abundant historical research that has demonstrated that far from being secluded in their homes, women in colonial Spanish America had an active life. Um, tell us why this case and others call us to question the distinction between the private and public and how we may reconsider the nature of patriarchy in this period. The Colombian chapter is in a way supplementary to the Spanish one. Uh, as I explained a few minutes ago, in Spain, I realized that wives were very numerous among the group of criminals who struck against their husbands to run away with lovers. The same happened in the Colombian story. And what I ended up trying to figure out is, besides the fact that they had lovers, what other factors could have accounted for the fact that women were so willing to 
go to the extent of murdering their spouses? And why is it that uh, disputes in households became so intense as a result of things other than having lovers that women did? And I found that uh, contrary to, again, some of what we have learned from other historical works, women were not confined. And actually, confinement is, is a very timely concept. They were not confined in that they were not secluded in, this, in their homes. They were not restricted to circulate in the household. The reason they killed their husbands is not that they were the only people they would encounter on a day-to-day basis because, again, women were not secluded. Women were not enclosed. Women were not totally confined. They had a very active public life. So I ended up trying to figure out what is that they did on a day-to-day basis that might have made husbands upset? And it was clear that many of the things women did that made their husbands upset had to do with the fact that they were outgoing. They went to parties, they went to church, they went to the marketplace, they ended up in contact with the sellers of, of goods, or actually they were sellers of goods themselves in contact with customers. So women didn't seem to have been restricted to the so-called domestic sphere. They actually were active in the public arena. And as they became active in the public arena, they ended up alienating their husbands because they were viewed as disobedient, as insolent. They didn't walk besides their husbands. Sometimes they decided to come back from church earlier or they didn't necessarily go with their husbands to a fandango, to a party. Sometimes they went by themselves. And as they were doing all of this and talking to people in the streets, they ended up flirting or considered to have been flirting. Being flirtatious was an accusation that husband leveled at, ha- at wives, and it might just have to do with the fact that they were talking to people. So again, the Colombian chapter ended up allowing me to kind of question the traditional understanding of patriarchy in Spanish-American societies and ended up allowing me to demonstrate that, again, women, if anything, had a very intense public life and that the intensity of their public engagement was behind the fact that they clashed with their husbands. And sometimes those clashes ended up in either the killing of the husband or the killing of the wife. Yeah, and this leads us to the final chapter, uh, which is chapter eight, um, where you argue that political and legal changes from 1808 to 1820 gradually brought an end to long-established traditions, such as encuamiento and church sanctuary. But a list of all the new excuses remain available to spousal killers. Um, seeking reduced punishment. So this meant that despite liberal trends, legal patriarchy remained deeply entrenched in criminal legislation. So here I would like to ask you, in the words of Elizabeth Dorr, who you quote in the book too, so do you think the 19th century meant, quote unquote, one step forward, two step backs for women? What about other subaltern groups? And here I'm going to bring the question I usually like to end my interviews with. It's like, what, how do you think your history, the history you're telling us, uh, matters to the present? Why is it important to understand this, this long, you know, the late colonial period, uh, the history of spousal killers today? The changes that took place 
in many Latin American societies as a result of independence from Spain were significant. Significant in the sense that uh, obviously these countries organize a different autonomous political system that was not anymore tied to a monarchy. These new political systems were more democratic without any question. There were elections, there were parliaments, there were independent judiciaries and so on and so forth. So these changes were by no means insignificant. That is one important statement I would like to start with. Yet at the same time, it is clear when you start looking at the details of issues such as domestic violence, it is clear that men continue to have the upper hand and continue to have preferential treatment and continue to be viewed as masters of their households. Men uh, were supposed to be the ones um, administering family properties. Men were the ones supposed to determine where families would reside. Men were still in charge of correcting unruly wives through moderate punishment. Men continued to be the ones who could get away with behavior such as adultery that was only penalized when committed by females. Men continue to have all kinds of excuses about being aggressive toward wives, particularly honor-related excuses, those excuses having to do with uh, having their honor hurt by inappropriate female behavior. So it is unquestionable that some semblance or some remnants, remnants of corporate patriarchy, such as the one of late colonial times, remained in place in the early 19th century. Another issue that continued to be conflictive in the 19th century was that by virtue of the dominance of the church, because the church continued to have an important presence in Latin American societies, is that marriages were indissolvable. That is, that divorce could not be obtained, that only separation of bodies, as was referred, uh, could happen. And the fact that marriages could not be dissolved also was another source of continuation of abuse because it was difficult to live an abusive marriage. It was just simply legally difficult, economically difficult to be freed from an abusive marriage. So I am afraid that uh, in the 19th century, there was a continuation of a number of characteristics of Catholic marriage that were similar to the characteristics of late colonial times. And there were a number of continuities also in the way uh, violations of the marital bond, of the marital contract took place. Typically, the hand would be much heavier against wives than against husbands. As for the lessons for contemporary society, Probably the most important lesson one learns when one reads about this is that the presence of domestic violence has been long and widespread. Long means it's been around for hundreds of years. And I'm not talking about just late 18th century and early 19th century Latin America. I mean, there are a number of scholars who have studied spousal murders in ancient Rome. In ancient China, 
in ancient India. So we are talking about really millennia. I mean, for thousands of years, women have been victims of abuse by spouses that happened in Rome, in China, in the 10th century before Christ, and so on and so forth or 100th century, or 1st or 2nd century after Christ, that happened in Latin America in the 18th century. That happens still to this day in many societies throughout the world. And what we have also learned uh, as we go through these cases of Latin America in the 18th century and 19th century is that the light nature of punishment continues to prevail because there is still concern over breaking up marriages, over chastising husbands who are supposed to be providers for households throughout the region. There are actually stories, recent stories about, say, Trinidad and Tobago. There is a very important book about Trinidad and Tobago that demonstrates that the court system of Trinidad and Tobago, when they are asked to resolve cases of domestic abuse, ended up trying to find mediators so that the marriage is prolonged instead of terminated through the sanction of a husband that is abusive. So the lessons for today is that we are still fighting to make domestic violence the serious crime it is and to address it in the serious manner it deserves to be addressed. Domestic violence is the most widespread human rights violation today in the world, far above torture or disappearance or other behaviors that are more visible in the press and that are actually the subject of the work of many NGOs, Amnesty International and and organizations of that nature. Domestic violence is much more serious, much more widespread, much more pervasive than any other human rights violation. And I think it deserves to continue to be the focus of attention not only by historians, but by policymakers, criminologists, psychologists, because I think this is one of the greatest challenges of contemporary societies. And until we don't do something about it, I am afraid that societies won't ever achieve the level of civilization that we aspire to live under. Yeah, and uh, it's such a... It's such a difficult topic, and I, I, my experience in Colombia before being a, coming to the U.S. and starting doing a Ph.D., I was part of the feminist movement, and it's a huge, this is a huge part of the agenda of feminist movements, not only in Colombia, but in Latin America, and that's, that's why I think your book is so important, because, you know, it can give us a historical for, uh, perspective of a phenomena that accompanies us today. So before letting you go, I've taken too much of your time. Can you tell me uh, what are you working on right now? What are we uh, expecting from you in the years uh, that come? What I work the most and what I write the most these days are memos because I am a chair of a department. So I have to write bureaucratic documents all the time, reports for my deans and so on. Uh, But on the side, when I have a little time for research, I am writing a a book on the constitutional history of early 19th century Colombia. It's a more boring topic than the one I I have addressed with you in this conversation, but it's an important one nevertheless. And I am uh, planning to write a book 
on the global history of domestic violence from ancient times to the present all over the world. This is a very ambitious project. I have already drafted uh, the book outline, and I intend to, uh, a year from now, concentrate full-time in producing a book that is going to be, for the most part, a synthesis of research conducted by historians of, again, ancient times, medieval times, early modern times, uh, and so on and so forth, until the present. I am uh, teaching a class on the global history of domestic violence, and I want to produce a text that can be used for this class and for other equivalent classes, and that can serve, again, as a reminder of how significant this problem has been forever and ever, and I am afraid will continue to be forever and ever. Well, I'm looking forward to that project. It looks very timely, too. With coronavirus, we also have heard discussions about domestic violence, uh, you know, rates sparking up. So, you know, it's. I think it's a super interesting project, and I look forward to reading that. So thank you, Victor, for talking to me today. Thank you, Lisette. Much appreciated.